One of the great things that the Holy Spirit does to us when we believe in the Lord, upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, he, at that moment, causes us or causes our mind to raise to know truths that we did not know before and to love one whom we did not love before. That is to say, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we used to reject and to love the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we used to hate. And as we continue in this Christian life, God continues to heighten our intellect and move our will, but specifically heighten our intellect to, to know various things concerning the Christian faith. Uh, there are many things I'm sure that you have studied that I have not yet studied. Uh, there are many things that you are interested in as far as various theological study and doctrine that I may never touch. And there's many things that I'm interested in that you may never touch. But saints, along our Christian life, uh, we can at times get so caught up in wanting to know the newest and greatest and the latest doctrine and forget the simple ABCs of Christianity. I mean, saints, if there is one thing that's going to lead us and take us to heaven, it is the ABCs of Christianity. It is those simple truths. What are those ABCs? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Christ, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But saints, as we come to our text this morning, the Apostle Paul gives to us uh, another case in which the ABCs of Christianity are to lead us to that celestial city. We begin in verse 5, verse 4 and 5 of our text. Paul has just reminded, or he's in the midst of reminding his hearers uh, to do and be ready for good deeds and good works. Now, we're going to get into these good works. But against saints, in verse uh, verse 3, you'll see that Paul leaves no stone unturned when speaking about whom we used to be. You see that there in your text, where he talks about us being foolish, being disobedient, deceived. We were enslaved to lusts and pleasures. In other words, we were enslaved to ourselves. We spent our time envying one another and hating one another. Saints, this is whom we were in Adam. This is man's constitution after the fall. As we know, man was not created in this estate, but man was created upright. But by the fall, man has plunged humanity down this estate where they not only hate one another, but they hate God. And against the backdrop of our sin and misery, against the backdrop of not only us hating one another, but hating God, when we had no hope, 
When we had no peace, Paul says, the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. It is against this backdrop. It is against whom we were after the fall. Against man's post-fall constitution. Paul then brings a ray of light into the picture. Now, you notice in the text in verse 4 and 5, it says, God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Verse 5, he saved us. Now, and those who were there Sunday morning, Sunday school, do not answer the question. Who is this he in this text? Who is God the Savior? Who is this one whom set his love for mankind and appeared? Who is the he here? Who is God here? Well, Paul here has in mind God the Father. Paul here has in mind God the Father. And although we can speak of this great love and kindness with respect to all three persons of the Trinity, we can say that just as the Father is loving kindness, the Son is loving kindness, and the Spirit is loving and kind. But here, Paul is doing something specific. Paul here is appropriating. He is ascribing this kindness and love of God for mankind exclusively to the Father. Now, how do I know that? Well, look at the middle of verse 5 and 6. Remember that he is God the Father, and he says, by the washing of regeneration and the, or the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Well, now we have the second person of the Trinity in the picture. Whom he, God the Father, richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, what Paul has in mind here is a Trinitarian salvation. We don't have merely God generically, but we have God who is Trinity that saves us. It is a salvation that comes forth from the Father through the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, and it's poured out upon us through or by the Holy Spirit. Paul here has in mind a salvation that finds its origins in God the Father. It is the great love that the Father has for us. That he sent his only son and gave to us his spirit. Paul here wants to highlight the kindness of the Father. The great love of the Father. Again, Paul says in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he, the Father, saved us. Now, saints, we aren't to read this verse and think that when the eternal son became man is when God, the father, began to be kind towards us. We might be tempted to think that that the moment the blessed Virgin Mary was pregnant with our Lord Jesus Christ, it is at that moment when she was pregnant that God, the father, finally changed his mind and began to be for us and our salvation. Well, saints, you should already see the heresy in that statement. You know 
well, quite well, that God does not to begin to be or do anything. There's no beginning to be in God. We can't say of the God who is unchanging, began to change his opinion of us when he sent forth his son. God does not begin to love us and begin to show forth kindness towards us when the Son appeared in human flesh. Saints, this is glorious, is it not? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want a God whose love is like mine. A God who, at a moment, can change his love towards me. There wasn't a time, even when the Son appeared in human flesh, that the Father began to love us, but rather... God has shown forth his kindness and great love for us in the deep mystery of eternity. You see, the son becoming flesh is a visible manifestation of a great love that finds its origins in eternity. St. John expresses this well in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. The great reformed theologian Gerhardus Voss said so beautifully, the reason God will never stop loving you, that he never began. See, Voss here is saying, you want to know why God will not stop loving you? It's because he never began to love you. Scripture, as well as our tradition, are in sync at this point. There never was a time when God began to love you. Now, this is quite different from us, is it not? I, myself, uh, and if I can be so bold and uh, courageous, um, especially in light of Pastor Antonio and his infinite eternal love for Martina, there wasn't a time when I loved, there was a time when I didn't love my wife. Because there was a time when I didn't know my wife. There wasn't a time, there was a time when my relationship with my wife wasn't as it is now. But in the same vein, I can also give you the exact moment, the exact time, and the exact place when I told my wife, I love you. But saints, God is not like man. And praise God that God is not like man. Saints, there wasn't a day, there wasn't a specific moment, there wasn't a specific place, a specific time when the Father set his love upon you. But as our Lord says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you, or as the King James, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Isn't it a wonder, saints, that before the heavens were made and the earth was formed before light was spoken forth and man was created before everything that was visible was made visible. God loved you. It is, it was the father in the mysterious ages of eternity that gave to his eternal son a love gift a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship and glorify him forever. 
and saints in the fullness of time. We see this great love of the father displayed in the incarnate son, Jesus Christ. You might say, well, how has God shown his love for us? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the father's love for us made visible. You want to know the depths of God's love for you. He who knew no sin became incarnate for us to take on our sin, our flesh, to redeem us. God sends forth his son. This is an important point to make. Not so that the son can turn the father's anger away from us. And we might be tempted to think that. That the son comes forth from the father and he is born of the Virgin Mary so that the father can stop being angry with us. But rather, God sends forth his son so that God can visibly show forth his love for us. The son, Jesus Christ, he doesn't win the father's love for us. At the cross, Christ is not winning the Father's love for you. At the cross, it is not as if Jesus Christ is saying, I'm taking their place so that you can now be for them. The Father sent forth His Son because He is for you. He sends His Spirit because He is for you. You see, the cross is... At that moment, the greatest preacher who's ever lived, Jesus Christ, preaching the greatest sermon that's ever been preached without words. He is there dying for mankind, redeeming mankind. And what's the sermon that he's preaching? God loves sinners. And this, friends, is Paul's point in verse four. That the love of the Father has for mankind has made itself visible in Jesus Christ. And as we come to verse 5, Paul will begin to unwrap the cause of our salvation. Verse 5 begins with a glorious statement. He saved us. And there's sometimes when reading our Bibles and we don't need to look at the commentary. We don't need to look at the Greek. We don't need to look at what theologians throughout the centuries have said. The text is plain. He saved us. Who is the cause, saints? Ask yourself, who is the root? Who is the agent? Who is the reason why we are saved? Paul makes this emphatically clear. God saved us. And for Paul, it's important to establish this foundational truth because what he says next is equally as foundational. Notice what he says in verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness. Not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness. Now, this is interesting because Paul says in righteousness, not in unrighteousness. So here he's saying, even the things you did as a Christian saved does not merit you eternal life. 
saints, if there's anything that you must remember in this sermon, anything, it is not my words. It is not any phrase, anything that I have said, any exhortation, any implication, any application, any of that. If there's anything you remember from this sermon and for the rest of your life, it is verse 5. That he saved us not on the basis of deeds. That is what you are to remember for the rest of your life. Here we see Paul slices the pieces, dashes the pieces, any notion that salvation is by works. Any thought that these hearers might have that salvation can be merited upon their own strength. Here in verse 5, Paul makes it clear. Friends, this is the heresy of all heresies. If one wanted to damn themselves quick to the fires of hell, it is believing in this satanic doctrine. That man upon his own strength can save himself. But friends, why is it so bad to say man can't save himself? Why is that so damnable? Why does that curse you to the fires of hell by believing and living as if you can save yourself? Why is that bad? Well, just two reasons why this is false. Number one, if we could be saved by works of the law, then Christ died in vain. If we can be saved by good deeds, then Jesus Christ died in vain. If man could be saved by works, by good deeds, then we don't need the eternal son to assume human flesh. If man could be saved by the good life that he's lived, the endless amount of doors he's opened for the elderly, all the money that he's given to those whom ask for money. If man could be saved by that, by that life, then what are we saying about the perfect life of Jesus Christ? Salvation by works belittles the perfect life of Christ. Salvation by work, saints, makes a mockery of the cross of Christ. Salvation by work spits on the empty tomb of Christ. Salvation by work says that I can ascend to the right hand of the Father. Salvation by work says that Jesus didn't do enough for me to merit heaven. Imagine, just think of that statement. That Jesus didn't do enough to merit me heaven. The infinite one did not do enough to merit me an infinite status before holy God. An infinite life before holy God. But there's still work that needs to be done. Friends, again, this way of thinking is demonic. This way of thinking is satanic. It is a doctrine of Satan. Don't believe this lie that there is any work. Saint, there is no work. There is no deed. There is no righteous life that one could live to merit eternal life. Not even saints are active believing merits eternal life. Not even our active believing, our act of faith does not merit us eternal life. Now we might think that. 
that for me to merit eternal life is I have to believe. To think that Christ did his part. Now, what I need to do on my part is to believe. Friends, we are not co-saviors with Jesus. Jesus does not do his part and then leaves us the 5% to do our part. It is not our act of believing, but it is in Christ's acts alone. It is Christ, the Savior. It is his life, his death, his resurrection, his perfect active obedience, his perfect passive obedience, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension. It is that work that merits us eternal life. Now, how do I get to that? How do I obtain that? Not by works, but by faith. My friend Cameron Porter has summed up this well when he said, what a high crime against our Christ to say that his robes washed in the crimson of his own blood placed upon us as our righteousness must be supplemented. That his perfect robe must be supplemented with something that I bring to the table. And the second reason why salvation by works is wrong is because the Bible plainly and clearly teaches against it. The Bible plainly and clearly teaches against it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. 2 Timothy 1, 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Paul says in Romans 8 that the works of the law, or by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Galatians 1.8, Paul leaves no room for misinterpretation here. But even if we or an angel of heaven or from heaven should preach to you a gospel, a gospel by grace. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That gospel, if someone comes and preaches that gospel or contrary to that gospel, to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. Paul says, even if I, who saw the risen and ascended Christ, even if the angels... Gabriel, the archangel, Michael, the archangel, any of the angels, any of the cherubim, any of them come down and preach to you a gospel that says that you can earn your way to heaven. Let him be damned. I love this verse. Last one in Matthew seven, verse 22 and 23. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform any miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Now you might say, where is salvation by works there? Many tend to view this verse as the scariest verse in all of the Bible. Many believe that this verse teaches that God cares more about a relationship than doing good things for the kingdom. But saints, the reason why Christ is is telling these people to depart from him is not because they didn't do enough. And it's not because they didn't have a personal relationship with him. But it's because they are arguing for entrance into heaven based upon their own works. 
Savior, I have done this. I have prophesied. I've done miracles. That is not how we approach the Savior. How do we approach the Savior, saints? Well, as we just sung, nothing in my hand I cling, I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked to come to thee for dress. These men are arguing for their entrance into heaven based upon what they have done. (laughs) But saints, we don't come to the Savior with our works, with our dirty laundry. We come to the Savior naked in need of dress. We come to the Savior naked in need to be clothed. We come to the Savior And the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that put our Savior upon the cross. That is the only thing we contribute to our salvation. It is that sin that nailed him to the cross. And is that sin that he died for and redeemed us from. Paul here couldn't be more clear. That salvation is not by how fast we run, how strong we are, how wise we may be, but salvation is by God alone. God alone. And if one thinks that God can save us because of anything in us, maybe maybe God looked down the corridors of time and he saw that I was going to be a good person. Maybe he saw that I was a righteous person and based upon that foreseeing, he says, I'm going to save him. He's a good man. Paul says in verse 5, but in accordance with his mercy. This is beautiful, is it not? That God saves us because he's decreed to have mercy upon us. Not because he saw anything in us. You see how Paul here is just elevating, elevating God. Continues to elevate who he is and, and how he has saved mankind. Saints, if you don't know it, understand this now that God was not forced to save you. God did not have to save you. God could have left you in your miserable state. God was under no um, compulsion to save us. But in the Bible, we read constantly these buts. But in his loving kindness, he saved us. He saved us according to his mercy, his pity on us. Now, how do we receive this salvation? And mind you, saints, I have no points here. I'm just preaching the text. How did he receive this salvation? How does this great salvation come to us? Look at what Paul says at the end of verse five. By the washing of regeneration, and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thus far, Paul has ascribed the kindness and love for mankind to God the Father. And here we see that Paul is appropriating the work of salvation to the Holy Spirit and to the Son. Now he's going to say, we have a great salvation from the Father, but it's not just from the Father alone. Let me show you what the Son and the Spirit do now. It is the Holy Spirit that the Father, through Christ, poured out in our souls. 
And notice, saints, the two words that Paul uses to describe the work of the Holy Spirit upon the believer. He ascribes regeneration and renewal in the believer. You might ask yourself, and maybe you, I don't know, maybe you've never asked yourself, what is the Holy Spirit doing within me? What is he doing there? Well, Paul gives you the answer. He regenerates you and he's renewing you. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing with you. And mind you, in order for me to be a fully Trinitarian, it's not merely just the Holy Spirit that indwells you. The Son and the Father live within you as well. That's for another sermon. The Holy Spirit, what does he do? In regeneration, he brings dead sinners to life. He brings dead sinners to life. The Holy Spirit, by his regenerating work, he supernaturally awakens the dead sinner to believe the truths of the gospel. He heightens your intellect. He removes all of the cloudiness so that you can believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times did you hear the gospel before you were saved and not believe? And then suddenly you believe. It is the Holy Spirit. But saints, the intellect does not move apart from the will. So not only do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but now you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You move toward Christ. The Spirit's work is to move the hater of God to a lover of God. The Spirit's work is to move a sinner who is ignorant of God's word to a lover of God's word. You guys here are listening to uh, me speak about something maybe 20 years ago, sorry, Ophelia, maybe longer, that you would walk away from. But now you're sitting here patiently hearing me break down the word of God. That is an example of the Holy Spirit's work within you. The Spirit renews us. He changes who we are. The old boys would say he elevates us. That grace perfects and elevates nature. He infuses into us new habits, better dispositions. We all have dispositions. We all have inclinations. Before you were saved, your disposition, your inclination was the sin. You were always moved to sin, to the evil. But by the Spirit's regenerating and renewing work, your disposition now is to move toward the good, to say no to sin, to put uh, the, the evil deeds of the flesh to death. John Owen says the spirit brings about a change in the faculties and elements of the soul so that they are no longer bound to sinful action as they were before, but are free to follow God in obedience. What is the spirit doing? The spirit is regenerating you. He's in inside of you. He's removing all of that old furniture and placing new one in new, new furniture in the thing that we used to be bound onto sin. The spirit has freed us from again, saints, by experience, you know this well. 20 years ago, you wouldn't be in church now. You would be some at some park waiting for the football game or waiting for whatever at waiting for the 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 the, the meat to get on the grill. What about now? Think about all the various sins and vices that you used to be indulging. Name them in, the, in your head. Do you have any desire to do them now? No. You have no desire. 
I think of my father who was, if you don't know, a heroin addict for many years. How was he able to kick that habit? How was he, although he battled for the rest of the life that he lived until God took him home, how was he never tempted to go back to the needle? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was 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 working inside of him in such a way to create new habits and dispositions to move toward the good when evil and the bad is presented. Only through Christ, saints. And how does, or rather, how does the Spirit indwell, the son, indwell us? How does He come to us? Through Christ. Paul, Peter says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only through Christ that all of the blessings, that all of the grace, that all of the mercy from the Father comes to us. Only through Christ. Not through Buddha. Not through vain philosophy. Not through Muhammad. Not through a better America. But through Christ and Him alone that we receive these blessings. There's so much more we can say, but saints... What's the great purpose of this salvation? Why does God save us? Why from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we have this wonderful salvation that God lavishes upon us? What's the purpose? Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Those who once were slaves are now heirs. Those who once were distant are now sons of God in the Son of God. Those who had no hope have hope. And he's sitting enthroned right now at the right hand of the Father. Your surety is not yourself. Your surety is Jesus Christ who is in your flesh in heaven. This verse is a sermon in and of itself. But here Paul is reminding his hearers that a right standing before God does not find its roots in man's strength, but in God's grace. And likewise, eternal life is an inheritance that is not acquired by labor or by purchase, but is a free gift. Saints, this is the point of the sermon. And there are many things that as your shepherd and even those who are visiting, if there's anything that you learn in this life and that can carry you, if I was to die this moment, and if I was to uh, not see you ever again, if there's one thing I hope that you remember, it is these verses here, that there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation, but God has done everything for you. Now repent, believe, and live a life that is worthy of such salvation. We're not saying that good works are not necessary, but what we're saying is good works are not meritorious. That good works do not, they, they don't creep into your salvation, your justification, but they are the evidence. They are the fruit of this great salvation that has been lavished upon you. You see, saints, what we are learning this morning It's the same thing that we will be singing in heaven. In closing, I read Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. 
After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. From every nation, from all the tribes, peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And again, the same thing we learned this morning is what we will be singing in heaven. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray.